50 years after the landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision, 40 years after experiments in school busing, school segregation is still an issue and young lives are being affected. InfoTrack's Taryn McCall has the story. Taryn? Thanks, Chris. Our guest today on InfoTrack is Susan Eaton, who is an award-winning journalist and author of The Children in Room E4, American Education on Trial. She is also research director at the Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School. Welcome to InfoTrack, Susan. Well, thanks for having me. This book is a result of a four-year research project. Tell us about it. Yeah, I originally started this book with the intention of writing about just the legal case, which is a landmark civil rights case in Connecticut, which was designed to remedy segregation that exists outside of the South. Brown v. Board of Education was really focused on those states that had intentional segregation laws on their books. And for a variety of reasons, Brown was really stopped in its tracks from affecting the segregation rates that were rising and that continue to rise in the North. This case, Sheffield O'Neill, was a state-level case, and it was designed to ameliorate the segregation that characterized schools specifically in the city of Hartford, but that represented schools across the country. School segregation seems to be a third rail issue these days, bringing oh, yeah. up the subject <laughs> of folks images of civil exactly. rights battles and forced busing and forces people to revisit battles they feel that have long been that settled. Won, exactly. Does the public care about segregation? I think that the public cares about segregation if they understand what the implications of it are, if they understand that segregation is not just a matter of demographics, that it's not just a coincidence, that in the North, even in some of our most liberal states, like Connecticut, like Massachusetts, segregation is a legacy of racial discrimination, which is sewn into the history and fabric of our country. And that's why my project really expanded away from just writing about the legal case and the significance of it in history to really trying to understand the children's lives. And when you look at the children's lives, what you see, we use this term segregation, but the term that I like better is actually isolation, because I think that that defines the educational experience that the kids have and their social life, their social environment that they live in in their neighborhoods. They're isolated. They're cut off by no fault of their own from mainstream society. And the messages that they get and the things that happen to them and the fact of this isolation does cause them to get angry and to close off to learning, which sadly is still really one of their only routes out of the neighborhood and the situation that they live in. How segregated are public schools today, and how did we backslide into this situation again? Well, it's very complicated. I mean, some of it is related to demographics. There doesn't necessarily, just because you've got, you know, an increasingly segregated city, for example, it's not necessarily evidence that something sinister or terribly racist is going on. In some cases, like the city of Hartford, at least in recent years, in a lot of neighborhoods in Chicago, Gary, Indiana, same kind of story is that anyone who can get out of a lot of these neighborhoods and communities that don't offer opportunity to their kids are leaving. And a lot of these people are middle class and working class African American families. And in a lot of cases, studies are showing that new immigrants, even when they're poor, are opting not to head toward inner city, high poverty, concentrated poverty environments. Segregation is increasing, especially in the Northeast, and it's increasing in the South. It's increasing in all of our regions for African-American and Latino students. And now the average poor child will attend a school where 53% of students are also poor. 
And a high poverty school has a number of problems that come along with it, a number of challenges that come as a result of, you know, all of the social problems that exist in these environments, whether it's neighborhood violence, family instability, and just a general kind of insecurity day to day visit themselves upon the classrooms. And right now we have an educational policy that doesn't acknowledge those vast inequalities, that doesn't acknowledge the challenges that these educators and these kids are really up against living in high-poverty neighborhoods. Your book focuses on one public school in Hartford, Connecticut. Why did you pick this particular location, and how well do you feel it represents other urban public schools? I think that it represents urban public schools pretty well in a strange way. I mean, I originally went to the school because it was an anomaly. The test scores were incredibly high. The kids in the school were among the poorest of the poor. It was a 100% black and Latino school. The day that this school opened in 1970, it was an all-black school because of racial segregation and discrimination in the region. And yet, in recent years, the school had been getting very high test scores. And so I originally approached the principal of the school and asked, what can we learn from your school? And what I found over time was that actually what was going on in the school was not a miracle. It was a pretty straightforward example of educators being bound to getting a very small number of children to perform well on discrete tasks that were examined by the state test. And that was pretty much the whole mission of the school. Recess had been eliminated. Things like social studies and science were very rarely taught. Even the kids, like afternoon special programs like computers, computer lab, had morphed into more testing. Everything became about the test at the expense of teacher morale, student creativity, student motivation. And even after the school had won a blue ribbon from the U.S. Department of Education, the test scores plummeted after the principal left and after the variable of instability was introduced into this public school the way that it exists in nearly every high-poverty school that I've been in in the last 20 years of my work. Instability is a hallmark of these schools. There are exceptions. I just didn't happen to land in an exception. Much is written about children of color getting short-shrifted on educational opportunities in segregated settings. Are white children also negatively affected? Yes, but in different ways. I mean, a lot of times people sort of equate, oh, well, white kids are losing from segregation, too. I think that's absolutely true, but it's true in a sense that is a little bit more difficult for people to grasp. That is, they're hurt in a kind of real way, but not in a way that you can boil down to numbers. That is, I'm not sure that we can make the case that white children are going to be hurt in any kind of job opportunities, necessarily. They may be affected in terms of their job performance, but whether or not being in a segregated environment where they never deal with anyone who doesn't look like them and who doesn't come from a background just like them is going to affect their ability to earn, say, a specific amount of money is just not clear. But I think certainly that white students are shortchanged. It goes without saying, I mean, by 2050, we're going to be a society that whites will be in the minority. And to go to a school where everybody is white and everybody is middle class certainly is not a fair representation of the society that the student will someday want to join and work in. However, we have a lot of evidence of people who have been educated in elite institutions who succeed quite well in the larger society by some measures, whether they'll have a fully enriched life, whether they'll really be able to participate in a full way as full citizens, whether they'll have a rich and varied outlook, be able to see things from a lot of different perspectives is another question. But segregation 
for poor children who are racial minorities, I believe will have an economic impact on children, on the possibilities of children fulfilling their dreams and doing what they want to do in their lives. Because they are cut off so severely from mainstream society, from the kind of give and take and socialization and the kind of cultural cues that are out there in the mainstream society, these children never have the opportunity to learn those things and to understand the way that the world beyond their neighborhood really works. And we put them at a severe disadvantage. What should individual schools and communities be doing to affect this change? It's a really hard thing to do to affect change in terms of segregation because there's really not a lot of avenues for people to get onto that agenda. I mean, the best that I can say is that people who are committed to having their children attend a diverse school or a school that finds itself, luckily, having a measure of diversity should be working really consciously to ensure that that school doesn't become segregated, working to make sure that all of the constituents are satisfied, and two, that can harness the potential of diversity, that is engaging really honest discussions about difference and about similarities, about things like citizenship in our society. We've been talking with Susan Eaton, who is the research director at the Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School. She's also an award-winning journalist and is the author of The Children in Room E4, American Education on Trial. Susan, thank you so much for being with us thank today. Thank you. It was great. I'm Taryn McCall for InfoTrack. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.